and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24 this week on our food and drink show. That's what's important, is sharing and increasing people's interest in where the food comes from, how to eat sensibly, how to eat sustainably. We are in the south of Ireland to meet an award-winning business that takes pride in its methods of smoking fish. Then we meet the founder of Italy's online wine merchant, Tannico, that has gone from strength to strength. We went from 1,000 orders per day to five, six, seven thousand per day. So it was an explosion. We'll also look at how British embassies around the world have been promoting the country through the means of great cooking. All that and more ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. For 40 years, Sally Barnes has continued to practice traditional methods of smoking fish under the name Woodcock Smokery, winning awards in Ireland and getting recognised worldwide for her craft. Before the start of the pandemic, Sally and her business partner Max Jones created The Keep. It's a workshop outpost set up in the hills of Castle Townsend in West Cork that allows the traditional smoking methods to be taught and for 40 years of expertise to be imparted onto a new generation of artisans and cooks. Monocle's Sebastian Stevenson has been to the very south of Ireland to see this tradition with a future. These were very, very... Look at this, not a very... Not bad fillet in here, look. So that was mine. This is definitely <laughs> yours. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> now, we left a bit of the fin on yours, didn't we? No, yeah, that was... So, yeah. now, if you... Have they just, firmed up, yeah? Yeah, just feel the tail bit and you'll feel that the, the salt has removed some of the water. So it's t- It's tougher. That's Sally Barnes with her 50-year-old smoker behind her, teaching in her full-day smoking workshop. She, along with her full house of four students, are preparing to lay the fish they just filleted on a rack to go into the smoker for a cold smoke, which is smoking the fish under 28 degrees Celsius. I'm in a purpose-built shed that is like a micro-restaurant. The main room is made of wood and has two long wood tables and benches to sit. Then in one corner is the entrance to where we are now, which is a restaurant kitchen-like space with two smokers, an industrial freezer and a food preparation area. This is the keep, built to spread preservation and curing techniques that Sally has refined for 40 years. Sally tells me about how the idea came about. So we created the keep in 2018, 2019. Max Jones came over from cheesemongering in London and wanted to help me because I was on the verge of giving up. My daughter had stopped working with me. I'd rather had enough for some aspects of it. But he encouraged me to keep going. And, you know, over the course of long winter discussions and lots of bottles of wine, we decided what I needed was a space to teach and pass the skills on to another generation because Max was very grateful for the information and the training and the teaching that I gave him. And he also is really keen on conserving and preserving old ways of doing things. So we created this space, which is COVID-proof miraculously. That wasn't in the plan when we built it. It just happens that pop-out windows and not a sealed space means that even during the worst of the the lockdowns, we were able to operate safely because there's fresh air flowing right through where you can see there's no windows. And 
Apart from COVID, it's been really successful. Lots of cancellations, lots of deferred bookings. There's one gentleman here who's been trying to get here for a year. Yeah. Who tends to come to the keep then? I imagine you had an audience in mind, but who's actually, when they've been able to come, who has been coming? Oh, that's what's extraordinary. It's such a broad spectrum of people. There's women who want to, who are keen cooks, who want to develop what they're doing at home. There's people who like to barbecue, and this is not barbecuing. It's a different way of retaining moisture in the foods that you're working with. You know, barbecued foods tends to be a bit dried out and a bit scorched. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking to vary the flavour of foods without crucifying them, if that's the right way of putting it. Yeah, it's such a broad spectrum. We've had individual travellers who are just interested in learning. We've had families. A couple came with their nine-year-old and I thought, ooh, nine's a bit young for these sharp knives and filleting. He was brilliant. You know, it's individual children have different aptitudes and he was just brilliant he got a bit bored with the talking so we gave him pencils and paper and he was copying some of max's beautiful illustrations of fish so that kept him amused and entertained you just meet the most extraordinary people i love it being a bit social and you know as much as i hope i'm imparting in the way of information i'm getting loads more back from them, from their life experiences. And I think that's what's important, is sharing and increasing people's interest in where the food comes from, how to eat sensibly, how to eat sustainably. We also do coastal foraging trips where we go and take people to different beaches. And that was interesting. Some of the people would be kind of local, but they'd never been to some of the beaches that we take them to. And they wouldn't have eaten the foods that we're foraging there. So we, we spend a morning out on different beaches. We might collect mussels if the tide's right for us. We might bring back definitely bring back the sea spinach, sea beet and an array of different sea vegetables and we cook a lunch with what we've garnered so people are encouraged to use those products and know how to use them at home you know instead of saying oh here's sea beet pick that and not show them how to use it so that's really good fun and great success people love it Right, now that's our fish stock ready. We're just making a fish stock from the filleting waste so that we're not wasting. That's the plan. And you've got lunch set up here as well. Yeah, we, we certainly do. Well, we're miles from anywhere. <laughs> and, and it's part of the experience, so you know. Are, I don't know where you have to put. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Before they sat down, I spoke to a few of the students about why they are here. Yeah, my name is Frank O'Malley. I'm from Donegal, but actually living off the coast of Mayo on an island. There's not an abundance of fish smokers in, in Ireland, and I'd seen Sally doing it. We catch quite a bit of mackerel and, and pollock in a quantity, although it's for private use, it's a little bit too much, so I was interested in finding ways of preserving it and become interested in fermentation and preserving food, and I thought this was an extension of that. And uh, how's the day been for you so far? So far, excellent. It's great to see the process and even the background. Sally's given a really good take on, well, even salts. Didn't quite realise the variability in salt and the different tastes. So getting an understanding of what you're looking for in the fish or in, in the process to actually tweak it and refine it is something I wouldn't have known myself. I'm Cynthia and I come from Spain. I'm a student of BHF, 
and I come here to internship. And the hotel take me the opportunity to come here to learn how to make smoked fish and learn how to make it here. Because I know how to make in Spain, but if you come to here, they have other forms. And my idea is that you have to take the good things of all and mix and make your own form to make the things. Have you learned a lot that's different from how you would have learned about how to smoke fish in Spain? Yes, I, it's different form because in Spain we don't put water with the salt, we only put salt and we use some different things to make more different showers of the fish or whatever you put inside. Sally will be retiring in a few years, so you should make your way down soon. Meanwhile, Sally has offered me a seat at the table. So, you don't mind, do you? From Monocle, in West Cork, I'm Sebastian Stevenson. And you are with The Menu. Italians still like to go to their local shops and many would choose going to the market over buying online. But that hasn't stopped online wine merchant Tarnico from going from strength to strength. Founded by entrepreneur Marco Magno Cavallo at the end of 2012, it now has sizable foreign investments and has continued to expand internationally. Magno Cavallo spoke to our Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, from the company's central Milan HQ. Ed started off by asking him what e-commerce in Italy was like when Tannico first launched. It was really strange because Amazon started in 2002 in Italy. So there was a lot of consumers already buying online, but really no one was selling wine. So we started with this idea in our mind. Let's start to make what now is the largest catalog of selected products, wine bottles in the world. I mean, you said that Amazon already had a presence, obviously, that's a giant. But, you know, even living in Italy now, there's lots of things you cannot do online. And Italians quite like that in some ways. They still like going to some shops. They still like to pick up a phone when they need to book a restaurant, as opposed to doing it online. So did you come up against some of those things when you were trying to shift to this idea of, well, you can actually buy your wine online. Yes, at the beginning we had a lot of problems uh, with wineries because we were trying, talking with them and asking, okay, can you give us your products to be sold online? And they told us most of them uh, online, our bottles to be sold online. Why? No, no, we are not sure it's not the right market, the right channel to sell our bottles. So for the first two to three years, it was very, very hard. We had to convince all the suppliers, all the wineries that, yes, this is a new channel that have to be developed. In 2020, I've seen your figures. I believe there were something like 400,000 orders and two and a half million bottles. So it seems like it's going pretty well, I'd say. What changed? Do you think Italians just got used to this idea of buying online? Just simply the internet has become more prevalent in people's lives. And I guess part of that question, how much did the pandemic also change people's mentalities? Because we saw so much, even medicine, moving online during that time. 
2020 was really a big year for us because we were already growing fast, but with the lockdowns, most of the Italians started really buying wine online. So it was crazy. I remember in March 2020, we went from 1,000 orders per day to five, six, seven thousand per day. So it was an explosion. It was also very, very difficult to manage all of this. But this is really the end of a long process because it all started years before, 2018, 2019. We were already seeing a lot more people coming and buying online. So it was something already changing. Talking again about 2020, there was also a very important thing that happened in that Campari, that huge drinks player, took a 49% stake, so just under a controlling stake in the company. What has that meant having a brand, a company with such international clout? What has that done for Tanico? and are you moving in a new direction since then? I am a big fan of how they have managed all their brands. And I thought, okay, I think that they can help us trying to build a really strong brand and not only an online presence, not only any shop, any commerce. So after one year now, more than one year, I think that the decision was good on our side because they are helping us a lot. We did a very big for us M&A deal last year, acquiring a French company called uh, Vente à la Propriété. And without the help of all the M&A team in Campari, all their lawyers, we have never been able to do this. And in 2021, LVMH Group with Moet and Nessi bought half of the stake that Campari owned. So they put up a joint venture between the two companies. I mean, it obviously sounds very ambitious, your plans. We've been talking about, you know, partners who've got involved and taken stakes in the company. You know, when it started out in 2012, we were talking about it was Italian wine. It was relatively small. It was based in Milan. Now you're in 20 countries. What's the next step? Where do you go? Are there other territories you're eyeing? And how over the course of time has the selection changed? How much is this still about Italian wine? I've seen myself that you can buy wine from other countries, but is it still a majority of the wine from Italy? At the moment, the majority of uh, our catalogue is made of Italian wines, but we are working a lot with direct imports. So we find and choose wineries, sometimes a lot of times small wineries, that we do import with exclusive rights. And most of those wineries are artisanal wineries with a great, great quality that have never been distributed in Italy, but also in other countries. So we put a lot of effort on improving our selection with Tannico. At the moment, yes, we have 70% of our wines are from Italy, but 30% is from abroad. A lot from France, but also from Spain, from Germany, from uh, the USA, and so on. And in terms of expansion? We have just added a few countries. We now ship to 20 countries, but have added three countries in the Nordics, which we, we think are very interesting because there are a few players 
shipping to those countries. And we are also pushing more energies with Korea and Hong Kong. Maybe another question that's, I guess, linked to this Amazonification, if you like, of buying tendencies. The fact that sometimes local businesses go out of business. People talk about bookshops needing to be protected because everyone's buying, myself included, on Amazon because it's just so easy and often cheaper. Do you ever feel that way at all with wine? Do you feel like the institution of the wine shop also needs to be protected? All the classic wine retailer and wine shop have to find a way to offer something different to their customers. So obviously we are very easy for our customers to use. So they receive at home. They do not have to bring uh, very heavy cartoons with them. But with the traditional shops, the shops have an opportunity to let people taste, to make a different selection of products, different selection with different philosophies. So I think that if traditional retailers can find a way to differentiate themselves, they will have a future. Well, talking of traditional retail, you queued me up perfectly because you have moved in a certain sense into that space. And that's kind of interesting because certainly in the US, we've seen several e-commerce companies or companies that started as e-commerce that then decided that they also wanted to have a bricks and mortar offer. Was that the thinking behind uh, you opening recently a restaurant that also has a wine shop in there and you also have a wine shop in the excellent new development, this food and drinks court inside Milan's main rail station. Why the decision in the last couple of years to open these two physical spaces? We started thinking on bringing Tannico to the brick and mortar, so going uh, out of the online, because we wanted to let people experience what we think is the Tannico idea of consuming wine. So we started with two different projects. The first one is the Tannico Wine Bar in the Milano Design and Fashion District in Via Savona. And it's a, a very important place for us because it allows us to organize tastings, events with producers. And we do have a very large selection of wines. We have a, a wine list of more than 800 different wines. And I think it's very important for us to start trying an omni-channel experience. So people can buy online, but then they can go to the wine bar, taste some wines, and then they can go online and order with the online, or they can attend what we call Tannico Flying School, is our academy with courses. And all of this, I think, is the Tannico experience. Marco Magno Cavallo, founder of Tannico, speaking to Monocle's Ed Stoker. Let's next continue with this week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. McDonald's has agreed to sell its Russian restaurants to a Siberian businessman, having announced its withdrawal from the country amid the invasion of Ukraine. Alexander Gavor will take over the fast food giant's 850 Russian branches under a new brand, ending more than three decades of the golden arches in the country. 
the American wine export market has seen its biggest annual growth in nearly a decade. Exports increased by more than 10% last year, the largest jump since 2013, according to the Wine Institute, an industry advocacy group. The market now represents an annual revenue of nearly $1.5 billion. German breweries could face a shortage of beer bottles this summer amid rising production costs and a shortage of lorry drivers. Brewers are paying 80% more for new glass bottles than they did a year ago, as the energy-intensive process to make them gets pricier. And food delivery platform Grubhub proved there's no such thing as a free lunch this week, after their campaign offering $15 lunch credit to all New Yorkers backfired. The promotion saw customers place as many as 6,000 orders a minute, crashing the app, overwhelming drivers and restaurants, and leaving many customers hungry when their orders were cancelled. Thanks, Lillian. Now, food is being universally recognized as a clever tool for soft power, and that is something that has kept kitchens of British embassies busy around the world. A new book, the Platinum Jubilee Cookbook, focuses in this cooking and the food UK embassies are showcasing globally. Amir Kodetsha is the author of the book and diplomat himself. I asked him about the role food plays in diplomacy. Everyone knows the cliches about the ambassadorial cocktail party, you know, the pyramid of frere rochers. And I think that's coloured people's impressions of what diplomatic food and diplomatic dining looks like, right? I think from my experience, I've spent seven years so far in the world of diplomacy, I think the champagne and the frere rochers bear very little resemblance to reality. But I do think food has an incredibly important role to play. And I think consistently when you speak to ambassadors and high commissioners around the world, they talk about bonding with their hosts through food, right? And that sometimes that's serving up the best of British food. And there's lots of recipes in the book that are examples of that. But also other times it's serving up local food. So British ambassadors show respect for and appreciation for the local cultures they find themselves in by serving up local food. And I think that rapport building that comes from evidently enjoying the food of the local country, I think is really important, right? And is really powerful. So often you'll speak to an ambassador and they'll say the very first conversation they had with that country's prime minister or that country's president was about food because they might ask, how are you settling in? Have you tried any of the local dishes or have you been down to the local market yet? So from the get-go, you find that food is a way of understanding another people, getting under the skin of another culture but also forming a bond between yourself and the country you find yourself in. You emphasise the role food plays in diplomacy, and what's fascinating is that there's actual evidence about that as well. There are a few anecdotes in the book about food helping to come up with diplomatic breakthroughs. Exactly, and that, to me, has always been at the heart of the book, and I've always found fascinating. You know, it's sometimes hard to explain, but... If you meet a fellow diplomat in a conference room or in their office, sure, you can get certain things done and you can have productive conversations. But there does come a point often where you need to build a rapport and establish a closer personal relationship, right? 
ultimately diplomacy is all about personal relationships. And so that is where food comes in. You find that if you take someone out for a meal, suddenly you understand that person better, you generate goodwill, particularly if you entertain that person in your own home. So taking someone to a restaurant is fine, but there is a I think almost a unique rapport building power to taking someone into your own home. And, and that is, I think, the power of diplomatic dining. Can you give us some examples of when food has actually helped? Yeah, so often the Iranian nuclear negotiations come up and are cited as an example. So American and Iranian diplomats were at loggerheads and saw each other as adversaries, obviously, in, in the very tense negotiations over the Iranian nuclear programme. But there is a, a story that often comes up on 4th of July, American Independence Day. They put the work aside and just for a few hours had a meal together. And up until that point, the two sides had eaten separately in their own rooms. But they decided to break bread together. And it was said to be the moment they stopped seeing each other purely as negotiating adversaries and started seeing each other more as fellow people. And, and it apparently helped the negotiations. So, you know, that that's one example, but there's so many. And, and even from my own career, there's countless examples I can think of where you're thrashing out a difficult policy issue. You know, I spent time in New York where the UK is a member of the Security Council and there's constant tense discussions and negotiations over UN resolutions. And I felt myself that when I took the time to take someone out for a meal, it helped unlock something. And that happens at the level of a junior diplomat, but it also happens at the high tables of diplomacy between foreign ministers too. What are some of the most memorable dinners you've been served as a diplomat? Potentially in New York, you wouldn't expect it, but it's sometimes a real epicentre for culinary diplomacy. And what you find is you can have not just one memorable dinner, but two or three in one evening, because wow. you have every country on earth crammed underneath one roof in the UN headquarters. So you often go for a meal at six o'clock and then find there's another reception later that evening at eight and you'll end up eating twice. Some of the meals from New York were quite memorable. Often they weren't full meals, I have to say. I have a a vivid memory of drinking Pisco Sours with a South American ambassador. But yeah, some from New York, certainly. And also, I would say, perhaps from Somalia. I spent a few weeks in Somalia a few years ago. And what impressed me there was you wouldn't expect diplomatic dining to be possible. But even there, even in the, the compound, which is the British embassy in Mogadishu, you find diplomatic dining happens. And the kitchen might be a converted shipping container, which it is, and you may struggle to get the fine English bone china and the Victorian silverware. But nonetheless, you do find that diplomatic dining happens and it's very important there as it is in Paris or Washington or, or some of the grander places in the world. It's amazing the research you've conducted for this book and all the stories you have included in the pages of this book. I'm wondering if there's any any particularly favourites or anecdotes you've come across when you've been conducting research about what has been happening in embassies and consulates and the various diplomatic missions around the world. 
showing off a British ingredient where it might be quite difficult or it may be something else. But one that springs to mind is in Paris, where our ambassador there, Lord Jay, was serving there during the BSE crisis. And so, so championing British beef was, of course, very difficult. But the ban was just coming to an end and the French authorities said that it could be showcased at the great agricultural fair in Paris, CIAL, S-I-A-L, but only on the condition that after the fair was over, all of the beef was either burned or taken to the British embassy. So the, the clever ambassador thought, aha, here is an opportunity. And after the fair was over, he put on a great reception showing off British beef and invited lots of French journalists. And the excellence of British beef made it onto the front page of Le Monde the next day. So I thought there's a great example of, of an ambassador being creative in, in showing off British produce to the world. Amir Kodetsha there. He's the author of the new Platinum Jubilee cookbook. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for Great Recipes. This show was edited and mixed by Chris Ablakua, David Stevens and Adam Heaton. I am Marcus Hippie. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here are Casey Lambist and Glasses with Oh My God. Thanks for listening. <laughs>